We're in the middle of the series on Ephesians. Today I'm going to be speaking about Ephesians 3, right in the center. Um, let's do it. Let's go. First one. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Now that whole section can easily be misread as just kind of Paul's arrogance. But it's not that at all. He, he gets, uh, when he says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, the mention of the word Gentiles is what sends him off on a tangent. So he begins to pray for them, but the emotion behind this sends him off on this tangent where he then, it's, he's not big noting himself, he's just trying to reiterate I, I guess, his qualification for doing this. Um, I was trying to think of an, an analogy for this, uh, and all I could come up with was a few years ago I had my wisdom teeth taken out, and the first doctor, uh, dentist, does a dentist take your wisdom teeth out? Anyway, yeah, I went to this dentist, and the whole time he's talking me through what's going to happen, and he's quite an older guy, and he kept telling me how there's a chance that you can cut this nerve and... Um, you lose feeling in your mouth and everything like that. And the whole time he's talking, he's like that. <laughs> picking up things and, um, and then he was like, the alternative is you could just leave it and it might go away. No faith in that guy whatsoever. There was no way that guy's cutting inside my mouth and removing teeth. So I went on to a younger guy and he kind of went through a list of accomplishments and what he, how, why he loves doing it and everything. And I was like, that's the guy. That's who I'm going with. That's what Paul's doing. He's just trying to emphasize. I'll just go through a couple of the key things. So he says, God's grace that was given to me for you by revelation, my insight into the mystery of Christ has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is mystery given me through the working of his power. So he's assuring us he is equipped for this. I'll quickly mention prisoner of Christ. That, that's important as well because it has possibly a negative connotation to it when you read it, especially if you're new to this. It's a prisoner of Christ. This is what I didn't want to know about with Christianity. You, you're a slave. You get trapped in. He doesn't mean that he was only in prison because he believed that Gentiles had the same access to God that Jews had. By saying that he's a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles, what he's doing is he could have blamed the Romans or the Jews, the ones that put him in there, but he's talking to these people about grace. And if, he start, if you were to blame the person that put you in prison, it's a contradiction to the message he's trying to get across. So he's just keeping it focused on Christ. Verse 8, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me 
to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Paul persecuted the church for many, many years, which is why he thought he was less than the least, because he ended up getting chosen. He was given the gift of grace by God, not because of his ability, but because God chose him. Grace is given to Paul as a gift, and he, his mission is to pass this on to the Gentiles. If he doesn't do that, they're at risk of missing out on God's grace. Grace is a gift that obligates. In receiving God's grace, we are obligated to pass that on. We can't keep it for ourselves. It has to be passed on. If it sounds... It's not confusing. It's not difficult. Consider... Uh, my good friend Jeremy said, I'm going to come around. Do you want to see Bohemian Rhapsody? I was like, uh, yeah, okay. So I saw, I watched this movie. I am now obligated to tell everybody it is a movie you absolutely have to see. It's one of the best movies ever. It will change your life like God's grace. So that's, that's what it's like. <clears throat> Grace connects us to God and Christ and each other, but it enlists us and empowers us. It's up to us to spread God's grace to everybody. And I can't stress everybody enough. Growing up, I, I didn't have much experience with grace. I'm from, I'm from a small coastal town about two hours north of Sydney. And it should be beautiful. It's like aesthetically a nice place, but it's very grim. I don't know why. I don't know what the explanation is. But the area is very grim. Uh, it has the highest youth suicide rate in Australia. I don't know what that is, why, what causes that. But anyway, I also came from an incredibly pessimistic family. My family, it was like we determined and accepted that we were cursed. I remember like things as trivial as going to a football game and our team would lose and then on the way home I would listen to my brother and my dad say, I knew we shouldn't have gone, shouldn't have gone, they lost because we went, we should have just stayed home. And so I kind of just thought that's how it is. Like I, ex I accepted that. And imagine like, growing up in that and it becomes part of your language so it's very hard to unlearn. And then years later, uh, my sister, she has a boy, my nephew, um, at 18 months old, they, they found a tumour in his brain. And he was told that, they, they were told he's not going to live past three. I think he's nine now. He had three brain surgeries before he was three. And that's, they said, we can't do any more. But he's nine, so he's still going. My sister thinks that's her fault. I'm the only Christian in my family. There's no other Christians. And there's not much that I can do that stops her from thinking that. She continually blames herself that she shouldn't have had kids and this happened because she had kids. Back to me. When I was a teenager... 
because I came from, all my friends were in a wealthier suburb, uh, right on the beach. I was in the suburb next to it, which was the unwealthy suburb. We'd all go surfing and everything like that. It was fine. Um, and then I, coming into teenage years, I realized because I came from a broken home and didn't have a lot of money, uh, my friend's parents, at being a teenager, you're very conscious of what's happening. You, you absorb what adults are doing around you and what they're saying around you. And I realized I was starting to get labeled the, the bad influence kid. Um, and I don't know if that's because I would get dropped off and then my parents would always be late picking me up so I'd be sitting outside my friends' houses and stuff like that. But I had no control over that. I was also a very nice kid, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I was a very nice kid, very well behaved. I didn't do anything wrong. I was probably, uh, like, I'd say the most afraid of naughtiness out of my group of friends. When we started going to parties and everything, I was like, this is heavy. This is, uh, this is a lot. I, I started to love going to parties, though. But I was, I was getting blamed as the one that was causing that, like, initiating the parties and doing all that stuff. So along with my pre-programmed pessimism that I grew up with, now I could add this undesirable to my personality. That became part of my identity that I'm, that I'm bad. Because also at a teenager, you're going through puberty. Like hormones, it's a pretty crazy time. You can't really rationalize, no, that parent is just a snob. I was going to say another word then. Um, that parent's just a snob, stuck-up, upper-class person that doesn't get it. You don't really think that. You just start to think, okay, these people seem to not like me, therefore there's something wrong with me. But I got sick of that. And one night, I was feeling really, really unhappy. I was in my room, and I prayed. I had no idea what I was doing or who I was praying to, I, but I just started praying. I'm 95% sure from memory that I did this at the end of it. <laughs> I was like, that, that'll make it official. That, that just sent it up there. <clears throat> um, but after I prayed, I started to feel differently. I didn't levitate. I didn't have a bolt of lightning that made everything better, but I started to feel uh, self-worth, like a confidence in myself, um, and then realized I don't have to be this person. I don't have to accept these labels. And so then I was like, okay, well, I guess I need to go to church now, but I didn't know where to start. And then anyway, through a chance meeting, I met this guy, awesome guy. Um, he was going to church, so I started going with him. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's quite a lofty and cosmic expectation to put on the church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms is referencing a spiritual place, a place that we don't see, more specifically, evil. So what Paul is saying is the intent of church 
is that we would be so united with perfect love and grace, so strong that evil basically doesn't even try anymore. How does that compare to the modern church? Is that what we're achieving? When I first started going to church, I loved it. I did love it um, because I was hyped up and wanted to learn, wanted to know everything. But I started to enjoy it less and less when I realized that I, I was right in the middle of the Christian subculture. So as I'm going to church, I'm realizing, I'm hearing things where no longer could you have a conversation about, oh, have you heard this band or whatever? The immediate response was, are they Christian? Oh, I'm not sure. Okay. Or have you seen this movie? No, 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 no. Um, no, we shouldn't watch that movie. Okay. Or let's go and see this movie. Our Christian friend is in it. There's this guy who is a Christian that's in it. Let's go and see that. I just, uh, it, it started to feel strange, very divisive. Um, and the dreaded, I, I played in the worship band. <laughs> and uh, and that was, I hated it. It was terrible. But... Um, there was, this worship band's great. Play, play in this worship band. Um, I don't know if, any, if this is familiar for any of you, but the dreaded, oh, we're going to play a secular song tonight. Just gross. Don't, don't play a secular song and don't call it a secular song. We played a good Charlotte song one night because they were pretty sure that the Twins went to church at some point, therefore it's okay to do. It just doesn't, no relevance, no relevance. But I wanted to know more about Jesus. I wanted to know more about God. I wanted to know what the relationship was between the two. I knew nothing, so I needed to learn, and that wasn't happening. It, it, there, wasn't, there wasn't a safe, I didn't feel like there was a safe platform to ask simple questions and definitely not controversial questions. Anyone that kind of went down that path seemed to be ostracized. So it became very much like a, a fence around us Christians, and we don't even relate to the outside world, outside of this fence. Even um, oh, backslider. You're a backslider. What's that? <laughs> what does that mean? And the more I went on, this backsliding thing, started to sound fun. What, what kind of slide is this? Do you go down it backwards, or are you on your back when you go down it? They're loops. It, and, like, the services... I, there was good stuff. I don't, I don't want to, like, be too, too cruel or narky. But there was good stuff there. But the services always ended with just, it was like the only opportunity for prayer was if you were not a Christian or you were a Christian, became a backslider, now you're coming back and you can, you're free to do the walk of shame at the end of service. <laughs> Come down and I'll pray for you tonight. That's actually like a specific thing that was said. I, was, I, I remembered an example. I'm going to play the role of the, the pastor. Okay, so play along with me. 
it was, okay, if you were to walk outside these doors after service and get hit by a bus and you don't know you're going to heaven, put up your hand and say, Pete, that's me. That's just dark. It's like macabre. What? Well, yeah, I guess. I don't want to be hit by a bus. I don't want to go to hell. I also don't know that I'm perfect and going to heaven. So, okay. But no one would do it because within your group and your friends, you don't want to be vulnerable and expose yourself. Because if you come down the front, you're kind of saying, I'm not a Christian. And then off you go. You'd be ostracized. And so the more time I spent around this, the more it... it brought back everything from my upbringing. It made me feel, um, okay, I've got to pretend to be in on this, otherwise I, I won't be approved of. Um, and the, I didn't like the way I felt in my upbringing. So now that I was feeling this way in church, I got a little bit angry and then just slipped away. Paul's presenting a church as an ideal, but to him it's real. That's what the church should be. He had such faith. He didn't know anything different. He's saying that this is what the standard should be. We either don't know that or we've forgotten about it. It's not just about getting to heaven. It's very much about life now and how you live. It's about discipleship as much as it is about getting Christian sign-ups or the, the born-again babies as much about unity as it is individual faith and as much about new life as it is forgiveness. Grace calls for all of us to be involved, not just the professional clergy, not the people that sit at the front, not the people that sit in the seats that have a reserved sign on it. We don't have that. If you do that, Ed, I'm out. <laughs> it's not just for the ordained. It's not the ordained ones that are allowed to pray. We all pray. We all have access to God, and we all need to be praying for each other. We cannot have that distinction. Attitude is foundational, and do we exhibit grace to everyone or an attitude of superiority? Occasionally, I go down, I'm probably the only one here, but occasionally I go down the rabbit hole of YouTube and watch a lot of videos. By occasionally, I mean three hours every day. I do that. <laughs> Anyway, there's this guy, a Kiwi guy. I'm sorry, Ben and Scott, but there's this Kiwi guy, and he's here in LA, and he goes around to unsuspecting people on their lunch break or whatever. He walks up and goes, hi there. And they're like, oh, hi. What do you know about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Uh, not a lot. Well, that's not good, is it? <laughs> what if I told you? That through him, it's the only way you're not going to heal. Uh, dude, wrong attitude. It's not, I'm not saying don't speak to people on the street, don't go up to people. I think that that's something that you should do, especially if you feel like God tells you to do that. But do it in the right way. Don't, imagine that happening to you. Imagine not being a Christian and someone coming up and speaking to you like that. It's not going to change you. It's going to add to the thought that Christians are scumbags. My friend, Simon, 
Simon Peter, little Christian dad joke for you there. He's the one, he's the one that I uh, met and started going to church with. He didn't say anything about church to me whatsoever. I was around him and I think people have heard this kind of thing before. It was a bit of a cliche, but there was something about him that I wanted. I wanted to feel what I was assuming he was feeling. That's God's grace. That's what I was picking up on. That's what I was feeling. And he, I would say he, I've seen him bring more people to church than anyone else I know combined. And he never speaks about church. So again, I'm not saying that this is the way that we should do it. But grace is what has to come first. My friend Simon is the embodiment of God's grace. And this is why people are around him and think, I want what he's got, and then they come to church. I feel like Christianity should be like when you walk past a coffee shop and that smell of coffee and you see a line coming out the door of the coffee shop. You either want to go in and have coffee or you think, I'll I'll go back to that place another time because it looks great. The smell is amazing. I just want to be in there. I want to be around it. I feel like a lot of the times we're kind of steaming broccoli and cauliflower in here and saying, come in, it's healthy. Come on. (laughs) It's just, it's not appealing. Verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul could have easily been discouraged because he's in prison, but he sees it as something that should be celebrated because he's fighting for the Gentiles. He would say the discouraging thing would be if no one was willing to go to prison for the Gentiles. The circumstance didn't define Paul. The gospel defined him. Paul experienced frequent failure with his churches, but he didn't stop. Helen Keller lost her sight and hearing before she was two, learned to communicate at seven by disting- and distinguish people by their different vibrations of their footsteps. In one of her books, she wrote, I knew that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful cool something that was flowing over my hand. She could have been discouraged. She's, she had to learn things like she was an alien, not like us. And she went on to do incredible things. Author of 12 books, created the Helen Keller International, one of the most effective charities in the world, speaker to thousands of people, activist, wasn't discouraged. My five-year-old daughter, Scout, recently taught me about Rosa Parks. She refused to give up her seat on the bus for a white person after being sitting in the spot she was designated. After that, she lost her job and received death threats for years. But as my daughter says, she was a change maker and fought to make the world a better place. She could have been discouraged. Nelson Mandela could have been discouraged, served 27 years in prison for fighting against racial segregation, went on to win a Nobel Peace Prize and end racial segregation and unite the people of South Africa. Freddie Mercury could have been discouraged. He would have been bullied brutally for his teeth went on to be the best front man ever. 
life's hard. I find it really difficult. Discouragement and the sense of being beaten down frequently characterise how we feel. And if we don't fall into denial, we usually become cynical and withdraw. But could we live realistically and still be confident? Denial of the difficulty is not the answer. Paul knew his difficulties and was still confident. He looked straight into difficulty and knew it wouldn't last. Christ determined who he was. And with that brings a settledness in dealing with difficulty. When we moved here, <clears throat> one of the key things we wanted to do was go back to church. And we did that. And it unfortunately led to the worst time of our life. It was, I won't go into the details, but it was incredibly painful, incredibly stressful. I would say I, would, I understand what being heartbroken is after what we went through. But in that, oh, she's crying. In that, we were alone. We left that church and we were alone. And we still prayed a lot. And we discussed everything together. We would get up and make a terrible cup of instant coffee. There's no time for pour overs, too stressed. And we would talk about how stressed we were and how afraid we were. And then as one of us would get to the depths of despair, the other one would suddenly be overcome with this incredible calm and have direct instruction from God. And because this is my wife getting instruction and I trust her with my life, I was able to trust her that she was hearing from God. And even though she would say, this is the thing that we need to do, and it sounded crazy to me, it sounded like the wrong thing to do, I would support that, and then vice versa. It would keep happening. And the whole time, it just kind of seemed like things weren't getting easier. It felt like it was getting worse. But now, I look back on it, and I can see God there throughout the whole thing. It's a shame that I can only feel joy about it in hindsight. But he's there. Do you know the most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Discouragement can come, but for us, it won't find a home. Our awareness of God allows us to be confident. It allows us to be settled during difficulty. Verse 14. This is where Paul resumes the prayer that he originally started at the beginning. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of the glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how, how wide, how long, and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him that is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout 
all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's intent is very clear that he wants his readers to be strengthened by the Spirit. He wants them to intimately know God's love. If that happens, everything else will fall into place. Paul prays that the Spirit will be so strong at the center of their being that their lives will show it. This is the center that we, from which we comprehend life and make decisions. When I apply that, when I feel like I have Christ at my center and I put him first with all of my decision-making, that's when I feel confident, not arrogant, but I feel confident and I feel joy, I feel grace. As soon as I drop that and let it slip and I start to take over, back comes stress and fear and depression. And that's not because God stops caring. It's not because he stops speaking. It's because I stop listening and I stop talking to him. And then usually it gets to a point where the stress gets too much and then I scream at God, One time, one day, my brother and I were just watching TV and my dad came home with a new TV. Let me put, give you some details on the, on the appliances. My dad came home with this terrible old big box thing with legs. Do you ever remember when TVs had legs? That's what he came home with. My brother and I were watching a black and white TV before you wonder, how old is Pete? <laughs> this was like 95. Not a lot of money. So we were watching this black and white TV, minding our own business, and Dad busts through the door and says, well, are you going to come and help me? He said way worse, more colourful things. I, I cleaned it up for you. And I was like, what? what? What are you talking about? And he tried to carry this thing down like the driveway, dropped it, so he was furious. His face was red. Mate, just come in and ask. Before you try, come in and ask for help, and we'll come out and help you. That's what it's like for me when I stop, when I ease up on praying and I start to take control of decisions for my life. Eventually, I get really angry and stressed, and I say to God, Will, are you going to help? But the whole time he's been trying to speak to me, I'm just not listening. In verse 18, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high the deep and deep is the love of Christ. Although this most of this text is about individuals knowing God, it's not about individualistic knowing of God. You can't have a me and Jesus personal relationship. It's just a bit, it's too narcissistic. It's like, um, just imagine playing your favorite board game or something by yourself. It, you, you still might have fun, <laughs> but you're missing out on so much. You're missing out on what the other players bring. And that's if you, if you try and keep Jesus to yourself. If you turn up on Sunday and then you walk out with Jesus in your pocket and you're okay, don't need to interact with anyone, that's okay. You can do that if you want. But 
when you, when you do this together, when you pray together and worship together, it's incredibly fulfilling for your relationship with God and understanding grace. It's like my mum getting an iPhone and she, I, I just want to know how to do a text. Just teach me how to do a text message. You, you can do a lot of things. No, no, no. I just want a text. But you could put photos. On. No, no. I don't want to know about it. How do I text you? So I teach her how to do a text message. And then over time, she starts telling me, I've got photos on my phone now because she's exploring it. She's not just keeping it closed in. She's not being too, too narrow-minded with it. She starts to think bigger. Now I get this emoji for everything. <laughs> hey, Pete. How you, do- how you going? <laughs> Sorry I didn't call. Feeling sick today. <laughs> Happy birthday to Scout. Just everything. Verse 19. Know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's a wonderful oxymoron there. See, I know big words. Oxymoron. It's saying to know the love that is unknowable, which is probably the only way to describe God's love. How do you know something that's unknowable? Through relationship. This is through your relationship with God. That is how you will know. There was one time at church at Bread. Ed was talking about uh, prophecy and kind of encouraging the activity of let's all partake. So ask God to speak to you, ask God to give you words of prophecy. And so I decided, okay, I want to do this. I'm ready, God. I'm ready to be used. Give me a word, give me a word. And then I got a word, and then I didn't want to give the word because I started to feel nervous. And then I started to shake a bit. And... I was like, okay, that could be me. I could be just nervous and making the shakes happen. And it just got more and more intense. And then I was kind of saying, okay, God, give me one last confirmation that this is... And yeah, I felt like I was going to rush up the front to start speaking. So I went up the front and said the word, and then I went back to my spot. And it felt incredible. It was a feeling, it was like knowing the love that's unknowable. That's the only way I could describe it. It, The feeling that was inside me was like an absolutely perfect love that I've never felt before. And even then, I was still asking God, is this, maybe I'm just feeling this, I'm conjuring it up in my mind, maybe this isn't real. And then something happened that told me it was real. My bum started wobbling. (laughs) It sounds weird, but my bum started vibrating up and down. I've tried and tried to do that again. Can't do it. I cannot make it happen. I don't know why that was the means to show me that it was his love, but it was by doing something that I couldn't do. And so as I stand there, crying, bum wobbling, (laughs) people started to pray for me. And all I could see was a gold castle. 
didn't really think it meant anything. It was just very beautiful. And then three people, three separate people that prayed for me, saw the same thing. The castle still has never meant anything, but what it meant was a confirmation of God's love. God was choosing that moment to make sure I knew that it was his love. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. This invites us to meditate on God, the one who is much more powerful than we anticipate. It's not an invitation to write a grocery list of things that we want. You could do that. Write the list. There's things that we want and you should ask God about those things. I want a Mustang from the 70s, like a, a black one. I don't know the time. I'm not a car person, but I like old Mustangs. But more so, I want the God that's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine to fill me with grace so that I'm constantly living with joy. I always, I always stress about money and the future, how we're going to retire, how the girls are going to get through school. And then I remind myself of what it was like when I lived in Australia and I had a job, I had money, and I was really unhappy. Neil Brennan is a very successful writer and comedian, co-creator of The Chappelle Show. He struggles with depression all the time and he, with all of his success, has to carry around, he carries a note in his wallet with a list of his achievements so that when he starts to feel the depression come on, he gets it out and reads it so that he knows he's not a failure. Kurt Cobain and Robin Williams, both wildly successful and obviously doing what they were born to do, both had families, took their own lives. It, sometimes it's just not the thing that we think we need, the thing that's going to fix all of our problems. We, c we might get it, and it doesn't fix anything. Christians worry about their assurance of their salvation, and other Christians seek to remove all doubt. I don't think doubt is a bad thing. You need time to reflect on the things too deep for knowledge and to ask God about the unknowable. The goal is not to have knowledge about God, but knowledge of God. That's the experiential knowledge that leads to our love of God. This knowledge changes us. The Holy Spirit is key to this. The Spirit is the revealer, the one who makes known to us the deep things of God, that we can understand what God has freely given us. Have you ever won something or been chosen for something and it seemed like it wouldn't happen because the odds are too great. I personally like if I'm at a long line at a grocery store and someone comes up and says, sir, I can take you over at this register. I feel like the chosen child. There's eight people still lining up and I just got a free pass straight through. To me, that's when I feel really special. I feel like, ah. Oh. The odds of you being born, you as who you are, are one in 400 trillion. 
you absolutely need to think about that and digest that. God made this world for us, and he made you, one in 400 trillion you, to be a part of it because he wanted you to be here and because he loves you. Let's have the band come up. As Ed said before, at the end of service, everyone will have an opportunity for prayer. If you want to come forward, I strongly encourage that. If you'd like, just close your eyes where you're sitting. Close your eyes. What has you discouraged? Why do you now feel discouraged? Bring that to God. Speak to God about that now. And what stops you from feeling like God loves you? What are those things? Speak to God about them now. Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you that your spirit is here. I pray that you fill all of us with your power. I pray that you fill us to the measure so that we know your love. I pray that all things from our upbringings, all hurt, the things that people have said, the way we've been made to feel, I pray that your love comes and replaces all of those things. Amen.